And let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and get the attention of one of the men coming up the aisle with Bibles, and uh, they will get one into your hands. We want you to read along as well as to listen to God's Word today. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we pick things up in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Our Savior is speaking and he said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received the two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, it's 2,000 years and counting, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so he who had received the talents came and brought the five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he also who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now look, here you get your one talent back. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own, at least with interest. And therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for every single thing that you have recorded in this book, we know that it could be twice as large, three times as large, ten times as large as it actually is, Lord, with all that you've said, all that you've done. And yet this is just a perfect revelation from your word that you have for us. And so we want to embrace all of it. We want our, all of it to impact the totality of our lives. And so, Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit... You would take this passage off of the page and, Lord, build it into our lives, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, Lord, at this moment in human history. And we ask all these things in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples in a sermon that is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, as he instructed his disciples concerning what would be the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And in this sermon, this Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus gave the disciples a priceless revelation into what would be the moral and the spiritual and the physical condition of the world prior to the end of the age. He spoke about what would be the birth pangs in the world immediately prior to Jesus' return to rapture the church. He spoke, has spoken of the significant events which will occur during the great tribulation period immediately prior to his second coming. 
But I think more important than this kind of heads up that he's given to us concerning the physical and the spiritual mess that the world is going to be in the last days, Jesus then in this sermon went on to instruct us as his disciples, as Christians, concerning what is to be our response to all of this, our response to the birth pangs that are going to come upon the world. And, and answering the question that he knew that this revelation would produce in us, and the question is, well, if this is what the world is going to become, if this is what it's going to uh, turn into, if it's going to destabilize and it's going to fragment all around us in the last days, then what in the world are we to do as Christians? What in the world can we do to make a difference in this world while all of this is happening around us? And Jesus' answer to that question is encapsulated into three great words in this sermon that uh, all begin with the same letter, which makes it very handy for memorization. And the three great words are that his return for us at the rapture is to find us watching and waiting and working. Watching for his return, waiting for his return, and then actively working actively busy about his business in this world. Now, as we saw last week, watching and waiting for the rapture of the church doesn't mean buying a recliner, uh, reclining chair, setting it up in a comfortable place, a warm room, hey, this morning, and then just kind of mindlessly gazing up into heaven. Jesus declares that watching and waiting is not supremely physical, but it is mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual. It is living our lives in such a way that our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our thinking is completely dominated by one thought above all other thoughts, and that thought is Jesus is coming soon. It is where my mind is so dominated by the expectation of Jesus' return that nothing in this world, not national, not international, not personal, will unseat that great thought that brings perspective to my life, and that is, the Lord is returning soon. It is to train or to discipline our minds in such a way that as we process this world, and we do process this world as Christians, as we process this world in terms of what's happening internationally, what's happening nationally, what is happening personally in our own lives, that our mind, as we would process all the way through these things, it would always end up in the same place with the thought, Jesus is coming soon. It is to be heavenly minded. It is to be Jesus minded, where our thoughts and our affections are set completely upon heaven and upon him. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in chapter 3, and he said, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in this vein. He said, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, 
according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, sometimes people look at verses like this, so they, uh, you know, this kind of an exhortation for us to be uh, heavenly minded in this way and to be so heavenly minded that all of our lives are dominated by it. And sometimes you'll hear someone say of another person, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And typically they're referring to a person whose spirituality of heart and mind never ever has a physical expression. It never takes on any kind of practical expression out of uh, their lives. It never translates into doing. It never translates into any kind of, of work. And there is that kind of person that you can enter into a discussion concerning heaven or the Lord or the things of the Lord, and uh, they will talk from a heart that is and a mind that is full of the things of the Lord. But as you would look at their life, it never translates into making any kind of a difference for the Lord. Uh, in, in this world. And it's that kind of person that they're talking about. But in this parable of the talents, Jesus instructs us as Christians that our watching and waiting is always to translate into working. I want us to notice several important things from this parable. First of all, notice that the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world is not to cease during Jesus' physical absence between his first and second coming. That's Jesus' concern. He knows he's going on a long journey. He knows he's returning to heaven. He knows and knew that it's going to be at least 2,000 years between his first and his second coming. And the concern is that his work and what he had started in the world, the kingdom of God, the establishing of the kingdom of God in this human condition, that it would not cease to move forward and expand in its influence during his absence, much less that it would cease or begin to uh, diminish in its influence in, in his absence. So in the parable we have a man. He's a master over servants, over a great estate, Verse 14 tells us he's traveling to a far country and that that journey to his far country is going to take a long time, verse 19. And the master represents uh, Jesus. The far country that he returned to was heaven. Following his death, his burial, and his resurrection, some 40 days later, he ascended into heaven, returning uh, to the home that he had come from. And so the long time between the master's departure and his return again represents that period of time between Jesus' first and second coming, now, uh, you know, slightly short of 2,000 years. Now, all of this raises the question to me, and that is if the kingdom of God is con to continue to expand, to continue to grow in its influence, even in Jesus' physical absence, then how does this expansion of the kingdom of God occur? What in the world does it look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Here's what it involves. It involves preaching the gospel to people that are not yet saved so that they can hear that gospel, respond to it, and become Christians. It then involves discipling these new Christians in order to make them into mature Christians, Christians who look like Jesus. And then with every Christian, everyone who becomes a Christian, this influence of the kingdom of God expands as we become an influence for God anywhere He has plunked us down and placed us in this big wide world that we live in. So we're kind of like Jesus talked earlier in His ministry about us being salt and light. He's placed each of us someplace, in some school, in some neighborhood, in some home, in some city, in some church, in order that we would be an influence in this world against the expansion of corruption in this world. And not only as an influence against the advancement of corruption in the world, 
but also as an influence for goodness and for godliness and for righteousness. Now, notice that as Christians, the parable teaches us that each of us has been uniquely equipped by God to be involved in this expansion of the kingdom of God in some way. And the reason the kingdom of God is to expand in Jesus' physical absence is because he has entrusted something of himself to each one of us as Christians. Some talent, some stewardship for the purpose of God's influence expanding in the world because we exist, because of some talent that he has given. Now in this parable, we think of talents typically as some kind of a, of a natural ability that somebody has. But that's not how it's used in this passage. A talent was a sum of money. I don't know if you were ever a, a kid and you were watching maybe a western or something and they'd try and, the robbers would try and uh, blow up Fort Knox and get the gold bullion in there and they'd have these bricks of gold, you know. Well, it's kind of like that, not quite as big as a, a brick of gold that we uh, have <clears throat> typically today, but a talent represented a sum of money and you could have a talent that was in gold or you could have a talent that was in, in silver. They estimate, nobody knows for sure, but a talent was a weight and that weight represented something somewhere between 58 pounds and, and 80 pounds. A talent of gold in those days was worth about 20 years wages. So this master, when he gives this talent and multiple talents to two of these servants, even the one that he gives one talent to, he is giving them a considerable sum of money. Now this talent... And this uh, stewardship, what it represents for the Christian, is say, what in the world is this talent? For them it was a sum of money. What is this talent or what is this stewardship that God gives to us? What does that look like for us spiritually as Christians? It can be some position of leadership that God calls a person to in the body of Christ. It can be the calling as an evangelist or as a teacher, or as a pastor, or as an elder, or as a deacon, or as an, a, a um, uh, uh, um, it's coming to me, it's right at the tip of my tongue a second ago, missionary, there it is right there, so all right, I'll get an extra donut after the service, I guess, for that. So these are the offices or the positions that sometimes God gives to particular people and it represents a talent, it represents a stewardship that God has given to somebody in order for them to use that position, not to glorify themselves or that kind of thing, but in order to expand the influence of the kingdom of God in the world. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said, and he himself, speaking of the Lord, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This talent or this stewardship for us, it can represent some spiritual gift that God has given to us. Every one of us as a Christian has been given by God Almighty Himself some spiritual gift. As God looks at our life and He sees what He wants to accomplish through our lives, He realizes what we need, not of natural talent or natural abilities. He uses all of those things, but He adds some supernatural gift of His Holy Spirit to our lives in order that we might be able to have that supernatural aspect of our lives. Where people would look at us and say, there's no explaining that person's life by Adam and Eve or by a natural birth. There's something supernatural, otherworldly about their life by virtue of the gift that God has given uh, to us. And some of those gifts Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he declares, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For the 
purpose of strengthening and expanding the kingdom of God. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as He wills. He goes on in the same chapter and he says, God has appointed these in the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, after that miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. He talks in Romans about the gift of mercy. All of us have been given some gift of the Holy Spirit in order that we might be influential for the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. This stewardship or this talent can include anything that God tells us to commit ourselves to that he speaks to us personally about in order to expand his influence in the world. It can be a calling as a mother to raise godly children. It can be someone who is a school teacher who is a Christian. And God takes that Christian, that school teacher who is a Christian and puts them in such and such a school, in such and such a town, in teaching such and such a class in front of such and such students in order to be an influence for God before those students. And he does it in that teacher who is a Christian as surely and with as great a significance and concern and attention as he places any missionary on the far side of the world. It can be a uh, handing out gospel tracts at a bus stop as, as something that God has put on someone's heart to do regularly. It can be where God leads someone to lead a home Bible study. It can be vacuuming up the church and cleaning up the church after the services or preparing meals for the different events at a particular church that fosters fellowship and blesses people. It can be God leading us individually to lead worship someplace. It can be a special calling to intercessory prayer. And on and on the list goes. And the point is, is that we're to have a consciousness that my life is to be engaged in the advancement of the kingdom of God in some way. And God speaks to us about how to do that, no matter where he's placed us in the world. Now someone may say, well, what, what, what is it that God has called me to? Uh, what is it that he wants me to do for him? What, what stewardship, what calling is there that I have for, for me to be influential for the advancement of the kingdom of God and its influence? I can't answer that. For anyone but myself. Each one of us is going to hear that prompting and that leading from the Lord in some way. We'll recognize it when we're doing it. And then we'll be at peace that we're doing what God has called us to do. But no Christian should ever be in a workless Christianity that we cannot at a, this moment in time, this morning, in this room be able to say... I know it is in this area that God has called me to be an influence for the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. No Christian should be in that place. We should know what that is and be actively engaged in it with that mindset. Now, someone, if we sit here today and someone says, I don't have the slightest idea what that calling is or what that gifting is or what that office is for my life, what do I do? Pray and ask the Lord for it to show you what that is, how that, what that looks like specifically in your life. And in the meantime, um, do fill a need. Uh, meet a need that is, is going on around you, and then the Lord will move, 
move you forward into that ultimate kind of thing. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I walked in and I thought, this, is a, this place is very clean, this church I went into. There's a great attention to detail there. I said, somebody's turned the heat on, somebody's turned the air on when appropriate. Uh, somebody's emptying these garbage cans, somebody's got these pews all straightened out and all the bulletins that are left behind, the garbage in the racks and all that stuff. And I thought to myself, that's something that I want to do. I, my heart is in people being to come in out of all of the rough and tumble of their daily lives, all the things they're facing in their marriages and raising children and, and at work and all these things. And I want them to come into an environment that's been prepared for them that it looks like somebody cares about the Lord and cares about them. And so I began to do that. And then a little bit over time, I began to be impacted by the Word of God, and it was so strong in my life, and I, and I couldn't believe all the things I was reading in the Bible. I wanted everybody to know what this Bible said. So I began to teach the Word of God. So it's just these things. And not everything happens within the confines of the church. You can take and be someone who is in a place where you are of the age where you've, you're out of high school, maybe even not just out of high school, but typically it happens out of high school looking to train for a career and God is instructing you to go to college. Say, so how can I go to college? The Lord's coming back so soon. Shouldn't God send me to be a missionary somewhere in uh, outer uh, uh, somewhere? And uh, way far away from here. I mean, surely that's the spiritual thing. Listen, if God has called you to go to college, then go to college. And But when you go to college, be influential for Him at that college that He sends you to. And if the Lord comes back while you're in college, He will find you being faithful to Him in the place that He plunked you. He'll know exactly where to find you. So a lot of times people feel guilty because they're not doing something within the four walls of a church. If every single person in the world, their Christian, their, their ministry took place within the confines of the four walls of a church, it'd be, we don't have enough for people to do. But when, when we recognize that our calling and our ministry is out there wherever God has put us, then we realize that's the talent, that's the stewardship that He's given to me, I'm to be an influence for Him here. So often I think that if you have someone, again, the example of a mother, and they can feel guilty in this culture, you know, I'm just being a mother and a wife for the glory of God and all, and the Lord's coming back, and what kind of, I should be in the mission field or something like like this. No, if God has called you to be a wife and a mother, and that's the talent, that's the stewardship and responsibilities given to you, then be that. Bring your Christian faith into that marriage relationship. Bring it into the raising of those children. And when the Lord comes back, He'll be happy to find you engaged in exactly that. And so it is if you run a business, or if you're a farmer, or you're a doctor, or you're a nurse. And so if we can look and say, well, I'm just this, and we view it as some kind of purely secular, physical, unspiritual thing. Not if I go to work each day. And I look and I say, this is what God has called me to do, and I bring my relationship with Him to this place every single day that I come to it. That's a stewardship. That's a talent. That's, that is Him putting you in a specific place in order that His kingdom would have a presence and an expression in that place and that the kingdom of God would express, would, would enlarge or increase there in, in that place. You can't do anything, none of us can do anything more spiritual than the thing that He has called us to do, whatever that is. That becomes spiritual work, whatever it is that He has called us to do and to live for Him in that environment. Now, notice in verse 16 that the multiplication of the five talents to the ten talents by uh, the one servant, that it occurred as the servant took his five talents given to him by his master and he traded with them. This is absolutely important. 
How did the five talents become ten talents? He simply traded with them. In the business world, and this is a business world parable illustration, in the business world, when you trade uh, a, a talent or a sum of money, it means you put that money into circulation. A businessman takes money, he takes capital, he puts it into circulation, into the whole business cycle of the world, and by putting that money into circulation, that money increases. And basically what God is saying for us as Christians is, we will multiply our influence in this world as we put our lives into circulation in this world. One of the great, and he's talking about the end times here, is a context. One of the great temptations as the world waxes worse and worse, becomes uh, more and more sinful, more and more apostate and all, will be the great temptation as Christians to disengage from the world, to want to buy a Christian island and all move there. Or would the United States just give us a Christian state so we can go there and make something of it? But there is that 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 great temptation toward isolationism. I noticed even the last week or so where this um, whole uh, idea or this whole tone of isolationism is growing very rapidly in the United States of America. And we just don't want to be solving all the world's problems anymore. So, because we're facing so many problems. But for us as Christians, as things get worse and worse, the Lord says that's not an excuse to cut away or to isolate or to develop a terminal case of the ain't it awfuls, wring our hands. We're of no good to God or anybody else if we do that. But we need to stay engaged in this world. We need to stay in the mix of this world while we're waiting for the Lord to return. And it may not look like God is doing anything through our lives, in our workplace or in our neighborhood or wherever it is that God has, has put us, but as we live for Christ, He will make it multiply. He will, he will make our lives influential. It doesn't say that they got out there and the guy with the five talents doubled it to ten talents because he huffed and he puffed and he burned that house down. There's no striving at all. He just engaged, stayed engaged with the structure and then the fruit came. So, so very, very uh, important. Keep your life, keep your gifting, keep your calling in circulation. May I say to those of you who are a little bit older, retirement is a concept of the world. You don't get to retire spiritually in terms of your influence, your gifting. You need to stay engaged in the way that God wants you to be engaged, maybe not as much energy, maybe not, certainly not the same health or the same abilities in, in the physical sense in terms of when we're younger, but we don't put those things on the shelf. Everyone is to stay engaged in the course of this pilgrimage. Now, notice that each one of these servants received a different number of talents, five talents, two talents, one talent, and because they received different number of talents, what was expected of each one was different. The master didn't expect five talents from the man whom he had delivered two talents. And this teaches us something very, very important that we need to be aware of as we serve the Lord. And that is because he gives different giftings, different callings, um, and offices and all is important that we don't compare ourselves with other people. The Bible says those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Talking about Christians comparing ourselves to one another and concluding I'm being faithful to God's ministry and His call upon my life because I'm doing more than, than that person or I'm not being faithful to God's calling because I'm not doing as much as the other person. And the reason that we can't compare ourselves among ourselves in this way is because in terms of calling, office, gifting, all things 
aren't equal. Some people are given an office or given a sphere of influence that is far greater than the average Christian. And God gives them a grace to do that. And if I take, and I'm, I'm a two-talent person, and I look at a person that's a five-talent person, I'll be constantly condemned. I'll st- I will strive myself to death because I will think that I'm not being spiritual enough or busy enough unless I'm doing as much as the five-talent person is doing. And it leads to exhaustion, it leads to condemnation, and, and, uh, and it can really, really uh, wipe us out. I remember when we started the church a million years ago. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what am I doing teaching the Bible here? So what we ought to do is just rent a storefront and order videos from Chuck Smith and show them. What am I doing opening up a Bible? You can listen to Chuck Smith teach the Bible. I thought everybody would be far better off if we did that. And they still would be to this day, trust me. But God had called Chuck Smith to have the sphere of influence that he's had. God had called me to teach the Bible, and so I have to teach the Bible. And I need to do what it is that I'm, I'm called to do. And then to be content with that. And if I never become the teacher that others are, or you or I never become the fill-in-the-blank that others are, we never reach as many people as somebody else does, that's not our problem. That's God's problem. Our responsibility is to simply be faithful. I rem- I, I, those of you who read commentaries or devotionals will recognize the names we're not a reading culture anymore which means some of the greatest things are no longer being read in the body of Christ but in the last century the two of of the great Bible teachers in in the western world in the body of Christ Campbell Morgan G. Campbell Morgan out of England the Westminster pulpit and and then also, a guy by the name of F.B. Meyer is one of the most greatest devotional, applicational, Christ-centered writers and teachers I think Christianity's ever known. Campbell Morgan was known worldwide. He's like Spurgeon. I mean, his sermons got done. They printed them and sent them all over the world. He was known as the prince of preachers, the prince of expositors. He was a remarkable Bible teacher. And F.B. Meyer writes of an incident in, in a biography concerning him. The first time that he went to a conference and Campbell Morgan spoke, Campbell Morgan had such a presence and such a command of, of the Bible and all. He just looked at it and he just thought to himself, I can never be like this. And he was tempted to just quit and throw the whole thing away and just go do something other than teach the Bible as he was. Those of you who have read anything by F.B. Meyer, you realize what a tragedy that would have been for the body of Christ. But it, but it was that here we've got deeply spiritual men tempted to do the same thing, to sometimes be a one or a two and compare with a five and be discouraged, and we can't do it. I think of the Apostle Peter. He always encourages me. <laughs> There's so much of him in me. But you remember he denied the Lord three times, denied that he even knew him. This is an apostle. I was just reading it this morning in my devotional uh, time. And, uh, and, and he curses and he swears, I tell you, I don't know the man. Now, imagine being at work or being at school or being someplace and somebody says, are you a Christian? I don't know Christ. I don't know. And, and How terrible would you feel? We're not even apostles. If you, on the drive home, if you did that, it would be terrible. It's not in us, you know. Well, Peter did it. And then following all of that, Jesus restores him back into ministry, commissions him back into ministry, even tells him the ministry that he's going to have and how he's going to die, crucified upside down. 
And Jesus no sooner gets done talking to Peter about all of this, and Jesus then goes over and he begins to speak to the Apostle John. And Peter sticks his nose into their conversation and says, what is it that you're going to do with him? And Jesus spoke to Peter and said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? I, personally, I don't want anybody to say that to me. If I just kind of pipe into the conversation, Hey, what is that to you? I mean, that's a put down pretty good. Jesus is sanctified into it. What is that to you? He said, you follow me. As he, again, Peter, it was a, a rebuke Peter needed, or he's going to be sticking his nose in, into the one and the five and the two and get the whole thing. You have your marching orders. Now you be faithful to that and you leave everything else to me. The parable teaches concerning our service to the Lord. Not everyone is equally gifted in terms of office sometimes and calling and spiritual gifts. But if we work hard within our calling, then we'll be as greatly rewarded as someone else who has been given far greater gifts in a far greater sphere of influence than us. Do you realize that if a man or woman is teaching a weekly noontime Bible study at Gallo, because God has called them to do that, that that man or woman's eternal reward will be as great as Billy Graham's eternal reward. Though Billy Graham is known all over the world and has influenced the entire world, if we are equally faithful to whatever the calling, then the reward will be the same. Notice, too, in verses 19 through 23, that one day those who are faithful to do what God has called them to do, that they will be rewarded for that faithfulness. Each one of the servants was called, we're told, to give an account for their faithfulness to God's commands here. And, and even as the master gave them the talents and said, now go make something of them. The Bible says each of us, even as Christians, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not for our salvation, that's the white throne judgment. We'll never face a judgment for our salvation, but we will be judged for our faithfulness to what it is that God has called us to do. It's called the Bema Seat uh, uh, Judgment. And, and so that is in each one of our futures as a Christian. And so the reward of these two faithful servants uh, is they're rewarded and included. I see three things here. The hearing of their master's praise. And then the realization that they've blessed their master and then promotion that comes from the master. And our reward for being a faithful servant to the Lord Jesus is one day going to be the blessing of hearing that well done thou good and faithful servant from Jesus himself. I, I, I live my life with the realization that one day I'm going to have a one-on-one -on -one with him and I'm going to look right into those eyes of his. And the, the only thing that I want to hear from him is, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. No life that does not hear that can ever be considered successful. So the blessing of being faithful is one day we will look into his face and hear those words from him. And then have the knowledge for eternity of knowing that our lives have blessed him. And then with it, the promotion into the joy and the eternal reward that is in heaven for just such a servant. Now notice in verses 24 through 30 that one day those who are unfaithful to fill, fulfill God's calling upon their lives, they're going to be judged for it. So here's the, the servant that's been entrusted with one um, with one talent. He's not condemned for that. But what he does with that one talent is he did nothing with it. He did nothing with the calling or the stewardship that God had given to him. 
And when he then stands before his master, he begins to try to blame his master for his unfaithfulness. And he begins to give all of these excuses for why he couldn't do it and all. But the master, notice in verse 26 and 27, rebuked him. In other words, there's no excuse, legitimate excuse, for being unfaithful in this area. It's very sobering, it's very strong, but it's important. It's the words of our Lord. And then the master's assessment of this do-nothing servant in verse 26 was that he was wicked and he was lazy and he said, take the one talent and give it to the man who has ten. Uh, you know, use it or lose it. Get it into somebody's hands that's going to use this gift and count it as something valuable. And the end of the unfaithful servant is, we're told in verse 30, that he's cast in, into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so some people look and say, well, the fact that he lived a serviceless Christianity indicates that he was never born again, and he was just an actor or a hypocrite, and so he's ultimately cast into eternal judgment. That may very well be true. But notice in the parable he's called a servant equal with the other two, He's given a stewardship just like the other two and, uh, that the master gave him. And, uh, uh, and, you know, the acknowledgement in the Bible, the realization that our salvation is not secured by, by our service. It doesn't save us and it doesn't secure our salvation. And so some people look at this and say, well, there will be something unpleasant, considerably unpleasant in his future but um, he will be saved nonetheless. I don't know. And the wonderful thing is, I don't need to know what this guy is about. All I know from, verses from verse 30 is, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And I don't need to figure it out. I don't need to know what it says any more than what it says. I don't want any part of it. And so if we are faithful, we don't have to worry about it at all. I think it's safe to say that Jesus doesn't know anything about a do-nothing Christianity. For sure he's saying that. We shouldn't trust in a do-nothing Christianity. And so the danger that Jesus talks about here for us as Christians is the danger of doing Nothing in terms of expanding the kingdom of God. Now you look at this and you think, well, I mean, some of this is fairly obvious. So why does Jesus keep repeating over and over and over again in the sermon about watching and waiting and working and watching and waiting and working and having us look at watching and waiting and working from this angle and this angle and the north and the south and the east and the west? Why does he keep going on about all of this? Here's why. How many Christians do you know who are actively watching and waiting for the Lord's return. Their heart and their mind is dominated by that great reality. And who, in addition to that, are also actively working in God's calling while they wait for His return. I would contend that this is a message that is very important for all of us to hear. It is not as universally obeyed as we might think. Is the kingdom of God and its influence being expanded through your life as a Christian today? And if it is, then this parable is a great encouragement to you and intended to be so. If it is not, then this parable is intended to be a great exhortation and wake-up call to what it is and the reason why we are still in this world as Christians and you are individually when Jesus comes back, he just didn't like give sermons just to give sermons. He really, really means it. 
When he comes back, he wants to find each of us watching and waiting and working. The Bible teaches, and I close with this, that at, as the return of Jesus draws near and near, and the rapture of the church nearer still, that the world is going to destabilize and fragment. That things will ultimately come to a place where there will be no human solution to them. Luke's Gospel describes it this way, that on the earth there will be distress of nations with perplexity. The word distress means disaster. The word perplexity means no way out. All of the king's horses and all of the king's men will not be able to solve the problems of the world that, that man and sinful man has created. That's where the world is ultimately headed. Now, if that's today, I don't know. If that's tomorrow, next year, next a hundred years from now, I don't know. That's not my business. But that's where it's headed. And I think we can feel the contractions of it today. And again, in the face of all of this as Christians, the great temptation can be to become overwhelmed by all of it, to be paralyzed by all of it, to think the problems are so big, they're so huge, they're so national, they're so international, they're so ingrained in the culture, the sin and the wickedness and all. It's, it's completely out of my control to make a difference in the middle of all of it. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. Our problem, our responsibility is to take the little place that he has placed us into and the little thing that he has called us to and to be faithful there to him. That he can have our lives to use and to work through in the last days. The big picture of what it translates into a city and a state and a nation and a world that's not your problem. That's not my problem. That's God's problem. And it takes, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And so it takes this gigantic picture that paralyzes us, and it brings it right down to a bite-sized thing, and it tells us, this is what each of us can do. And then God will add to that what he needs to add to it for his plan to continue to unfold in the world. When he comes back, he wants to find us watching and waiting and working. And that's not just good for the world, that's good for us and necessary for us. Let's stand together and we'll pray.